It's certainly a very meaningful thing, isn't it, to be able to mouth the words of a song like, It is well with my soul, and to mean those things and to appreciate the blessing and the reward that goes with serving God faithfully. We are certainly happy that we have come to the first day of the week and are permitted to assemble today in the way that we are. And certainly as we're thankful for these things, we are pleased very much that God has been so good to us. May I ask that each of us keep in mind that uh, all those announcements that were made a moment ago, but certainly that one about the change in our schedule this week, uh, as, as Cale mentioned in those announcements, keep in mind the midweek service, although usually on Wednesday, it'll be Thursday of this week. So keep in mind, 7 o'clock Thursday night instead of 7 o'clock Wednesday evening. And we look forward to gathering on that occasion by the blessing of God and studying a part of His Word together. The lesson today has to do with, again, a, a matter that I've entitled, Marriage Matters. God says no. Isn't it amazing the power and strength of the word no? Even a little child soon, one would expect, learns the nature of what the word no means. It means dad and mom and other authority figures have asserted this is not to be done. And there are no exceptions and there are no excuses. Daddy says not to do it. Or mama says not to do it. And one in wisdom ought to quickly learn what that word no means. As you notice this next slide, we continue to live as usual, appreciating the winds and the blowing thrust of those changes about us. Now, we understand the human family ever since the beginning has had to deal with cultural norms and those things that culture, of course, proceeds to approve and to even grant its blessings upon. But yet those who love the Lord and those who are convicted and are dedicated to Him have understood the constant challenge of making sure our compass is directed by the things of God and not by the norms of society. Those in society will, of course, assert many things because it's convenient for them. But yet God says not so. As you and I close that slide, the words of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, are still so needful in our appreciation. Isn't it true that there, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, made these statements, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. They in that day, the Roman day, they were under the challenge and the barrage. Society dictated and asserted many things and Paul told that church, you cannot do that. You've got to be transformed, not conformed. Those words are as needful today as they ever were then. And they are as powerful today as they were then as well. This morning, although many things could be discussed about marriage, our goal is just to open the Word of God and let it teach us and talk to us about an unchanging appreciation we must always have about that divine arrangement. As we do that, let's take our mind back to the beginning. May I submit to you, 
that it is an interesting thing to behold the state of affairs of a certain thing at its inception, at its beginning, and then to pay attention to what happens over time as society changes and as cultural expectations change. Because you can always compare and see what it was like at the beginning. Why don't we do that for the next few moments concerning marriage? And so it is, you'll notice at the top of that slide, isn't it true that God fashioned this universe and everything within it in six power-packed days? On day number six, He created man. That man's name was Adam. Inasmuch as He created him, He endowed him with capabilities and with expectations He never gave to anything in the animal kingdom. This one, this Adam, was made in his image, namely the image of God, Genesis 1.26. Furthermore, you notice that not only did he create him like that, he created a helpmeet for him. Now, we understand that God had made the male and the female in, in the animal kingdom, but with regard to Adam, there was only him. But in Genesis 2, verse number 18, God observed looking upon that which He had made. It's not good that the man should be alone. And God made this statement of initiative, I will make a helpmeet for him. Now that's King James wording, but that phrase helpmeet means helper suitable for him. I will make a companion for him. I will make one who can be with him. Isn't it true then, as that chapter proceeds to its conclusion, the following ideas become rather clear. God brought a deep sleep upon Adam and performed the first surgery, removing from his side a rib. And from that rib, He fashioned the helper for Adam, the woman. She would be called Eve in Genesis 3 verse 20. At that point, might we pay attention to some of the middle statements on that slide. She was the helper for Adam. Later, Paul would say it like this in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. Adam was fashioned first, the woman, Eve, second. With those things in mind, it leads us to that next point, that next idea. God brought that woman to the man. And these words we then read beginning in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2. Adam speaks first. As he looked upon this creature, this woman that had been brought to him by God, it was Adam who said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. At that point, we now learn what the word woman means. When you and I see the word woman in a dictionary or otherwise a reference to it, W-O-M-A-N, it literally means taken out of man. Isn't it interesting? I've often wondered if perhaps the feminist movement would try to take that word out of our language, but they haven't yet. With that, add this. The next verse says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. At that point, we notice the next verse says, The man and his wife. Notice they were now married. The man and his wife. Isn't it a significant conclusion then to appreciate at the beginning, at the very inception, this is the ordering which God put in place. 
He made one woman for one man for life. Would you rehearse that verse with me again? Therefore, verse 24, shall a man leave his father and mother. Now you still love your parents, but one cleaves now to this wife of yours. And the husband she cleaves to, or rather the wife she cleaves to her husband. They have been fashioned into one flesh. Don't you find it a bit interesting, somewhat even amazing to contemplate this? May I ask who the parents of Adam and Eve were at this point? Yet in that verse it says a man should leave father and mother. Adam didn't have a father or mother on earth to leave. This was a pronouncement for all time hereafter. Although again, one has obligations to parents. You cleave to your spouse, your husband, your wife. They have been fashioned into one flesh. The unity... The amazing characteristic of marriage as it is here presented has never been surpassed. It's fact never even been equaled. One flesh. This man and woman have been bound together under the appreciation of matrimony. This that we appreciate perhaps is now called marriage and in so doing they're bound together in their understandings in terms of what life is all about a common mission to assist, to encourage, to help, and, in, and move forward one another. As they do all of this, it all started the, at the beginning. Marriage is not some late invention of the human family. It's not something that scholars somewhere dreamt up. We have just read about it at the very beginning. As you and I close that slide, it prepares us to notice these consequences it's true, as you and I proceed to look at some later Old Testament passages, we can see that the human family on occasion had other ideas. To mention two of them, concubinage. There came a time later that men would have one main wife and then they would have other secondary women in their lives with whom they had relations sexually. Concubines. You did notice with me that that's not found in Genesis 2. Concubinage was not a part of God's original arrangement and plan. We also learned that later some men somewhere had the idea that they'd have many wives. In fact, that idea happened fairly early on in Genesis 4. There was a man named Lamech and he had two wives. Did you notice that too wasn't in Genesis chapter 2? It was not a part of the original arrangement. It was not a part of that one flesh described in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 2. At this point, what should be our appreciation of these other viewpoints, these alternative ideas? I think it's fair to say, let's let Jesus answer it. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19? A moment ago, James read from that chapter, one verse, verse number 9. But could I invite us to reflect upon some of those verses that preceded it? Beginning in verse number 1 of that chapter, the following conversations develop. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, He departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them there. 
The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Let's pause there for just a moment. The Lord already had enjoyed a notable popularity. And at this point also the Pharisees, the text says, came to him. They, of course, were a well-known religious group of the time. They came to Jesus and two little words, it says they were tempting him. They really weren't serious about the question and they weren't serious about his answer either. Their goal was to entrap him by asking him some question that would discredit him in the ears of this audience that was following him and something that would allow them to gain the upper hand on him so that they could gain some of the popularity that he had. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now that sounds just as modern and just as appropriate today as it did then. We can already gain the feeling that back in the days of the Roman Empire, there were ongoing discussions and considerations about divorce. Verse number 4, Jesus answered it like this. And He answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. What therefore, wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Would you keep in mind then that roughly 4,000 years of human history passed between the time of Genesis chapter 2 and the time of Matthew 19. Approximately 4,000 years of human invention and human development and cultural change. And Jesus forevermore said it's the same way now that it was back then. God's idea of marriage hadn't changed. God's prescription of what constitutes marriage is exactly the same in Matthew 19 as it was in Genesis 2. All those other things the human family introduced, they were perversions. Multiple marriages and concubinage, all of that and everything else that went with it, it was perversion, it wasn't truth. And it wasn't something that would lead to the advancement, if you please, of human society. For those reasons, let's close that slide like this. What we've highlighted is those understandings in Genesis 2 forever appreciated a foundation. Things to which we can always turn for the anchor that helps us understand about marriage and all that goes with it. Let's use that then to help us in this point. The modern consideration of, and in fact, it's a bit of an old consideration too, but this issue of divorce. You'll notice on this slide, and let's perhaps develop this with at least a little bit of historical background. If you and I start at the top, there was a time, at least in the early history of our own country, when it was at least generally appreciated that marriage is a lifetime arrangement. That is to say that marriage is permanent. Now, I know that there were divorces. They tended to be relatively few in number, but at least the general individual in society understood that it was a commitment that you make for life. I'd like to offer you some of these statistics. If you turn back the clock exactly 150 years, 
to the year 1868 in our country. Now realize that's still several decades into the formation of our country, wasn't quite yet 100 years old. There were 10,000 divorces and annulments on record that year. Now that's still a sizable number, I admit, but compare it to the year 2010. 872,000 divorces in our country. Now, I know the population was less in 1868, but still, by percentage, that number is so small compared to what it was in 1868. The cultural appreciation has changed in the mind of many for marriage. Whereas once it was understood that marriage is permanent, you enter into it with the understanding that it's to last until death. That, by and large, has changed. It's now more or less felt as if, try marriage, and if you don't like it, get out of it. You can get a divorce without much difficulty at all. In fact, I'd like to offer to you the fact that even when divorce was granted back in those early days, typically there had to be what was considered an exceptionally good reason for it. You couldn't just go to a judge and ask for a divorce. That judge is going to ask for a reason. Is there brutality? Is there rape? Is there something else about infidelity? Is there some reason for it? That has changed. That has changed dramatically. The state of California was the first state in 1970 to introduce no-fault divorce. You don't even have to have a reason. I just don't want to be married anymore to her or to him. From what I now understand, every single state has some kind of a no-fault divorce on its books. No reason has to be offered. No justification whatsoever. In addition to that, look at the cost. A little research led me to conclude again, as far as I can tell, you can easily get a divorce for about $150. Some even at 139. May I say to you how little that is on the whole compared to what we typically spend for so many other things. I'd like to suggest it seems to me that does say about how much our society cares about the covenant of marriage. It says about how much we care about the sanctity and solemnity of it. You can get out of it for no reason and it won't cost you much money either. Tragic, sad. Let's close that slide and do so like this. The Word of God has a very, very different record and very different appreciation than this. So our modern society says, marriage isn't that important. Get out of it if you want to. You don't even need a reason. What does the Bible say? What about the infallible, inerrant, perfect Word of God? God says no. In Malachi 2, verse number 16, this was now even in the latter days of the Old Testament. God had there decreed, I hate putting away. And that was in the context of these family circumstances in which divorces were being contracted. And God said, I hate this. Wasn't it true that Jesus said, 
What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It is God that does the joining. And when individuals, a man and a woman, are joined, not only in the sight of witnesses, who of course observe it, but in the sight of God, He joins them. And God says, I hate when these unions, these blessed matrimonies, are ripped asunder and torn apart. No wonder that hatred that God has leads us to appreciate some of these things as well. On this next slide, let's begin there again at the top. Doing so with this, God's law of divorce, far different from the one we noted in man's case a moment ago, is very specific and it's very rigid. It is highly inflexible, if we could state it that way. In Matthew 19, verse number 9, the very text that was read earlier today, Jesus said, I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. The common understanding of the day today seems to be this contract a marriage, meet up with somebody else, get married again, and there's nothing to think about. Doesn't God want me to be happy? God wants us to be faithful. Look back to the verse. Whosoever shall put away his wife, that is just as appropriate for a woman as it is for a man. Either one who then contracts this particular divorce, unless it's for the cause of fornication, and marries somebody else, Jesus says, this person is now committing adultery. And you can't go to heaven that way. Because Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21 says, As it lists the works of the flesh, the first one on the list is adultery. And Paul says these are, going, are not going to go to heaven. This is not a minor issue then. This is a major matter, isn't it? And although our culture and the winds of change that have led many to think along these lines, God says no. Inasmuch as He says it that way, Let's again look at another aspect of verse, nine, verse number 9. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And so adultery, as it's there described, it is used to characterize this unlawful marriage. And the verse closes like this. Whoso marries her which is put away doth commit adultery. Therefore, it is extremely vital to understand as one enters marriage whether that person you're marrying is eligible to marry. If that person is a previous divorcee and that divorce was for some cause other than fornication on the part of the other individual, that person cannot remarry scripturally. That's what Jesus said. It is our desire to understand the rigidity of this because we want to go to heaven You'll notice that isn't the only place that sentiments along that line are, are in fact found. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse number 2. Here as Paul addressed the congregation in Rome, these particular statements very powerfully were made. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. 
But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Paul said, don't you know this is a permanent lifetime arrangement? The woman that's got a husband is bound to him as long as he's alive. That's powerful. That's direct. And although many in our culture would wish not to think so highly of that, it doesn't change what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, similar language is found again. Would you note this one with me, written to a whole different congregation. This previous one written to the church at Rome. This next one to the church at Corinth. Verse 39, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. The beginning of that verse highlights in our thinking again that she's bound by the law to that man, to her husband, as long as he's alive. Now, you and I know the Lord did give that exception clause. If that man commits fornication, then she can obtain a divorce, and she, of course, is thus free to remarry. But it does seem as if that's such a small percentage of the overall understandings of what brings the reality of divorce to the numbers it does today. You'll notice then near the bottom of that slide, God says no. Though judges may bang the gavel time and again and say, divorce granted, divorce granted, God says no. Only for the fixed considerations that we've read about in Matthew 19, 9 is the God of heaven in a position to grant that divorce. So you and I have got to understand, God says no. And no thinking on the part of man no scholarship, no appreciative explanation is going to change what the Bible has had to say. This isn't the only thing, though, that the human family has begun to think about in such dire order. The other one, it seems, has gained such prominence. It would perhaps do us well to at least take a moment and think about the application of our studies today to this next question. We all know very well that in recent days there has been a strong push to redefine what constitutes as marriage in such a way that same-sex couples could enjoy that as well. Well, what does the Word of God have to say about this? Well, as you and I notice again, could I at least begin it with this word which sounds ominous because it is? Until about 20 years ago, every society in the history of this planet, no matter what continent they lived on, no matter the particular barbaric character of what their basic nature was, every society understood that marriage involved a man and a woman. But about 20 years ago, for the very first time, some nations and some societies began to change that definition, or to at least attempt to. And so, Australia, certain European countries, and now the United States of America has made these changes. And again, notice, every society up until that point, nobody had ever had an idea like this. Would you be impressed? That would include some of the most cruel, some of the most violent, some of the most barbaric countries 
the ancient Roman Empire, as evil in many ways as it was, they never tried to redefine marriage. The ancient Egyptian society that was so idolatrous, they never tried to redefine marriage. Even Sodom and Gomorrah never tried to redefine marriage. Even they understood it was a man and a woman, and nothing else would qualify. And yet the United States has now done something that none of those other nations ever did. We have sunk to a level of depravity and decay. We've sunk to a level of moral recklessness to where we have now attempted by the decree of June 2015, our Supreme Court decreed in the case of Obergefell versus Hodges, every nation, I'm sorry, every state in our union, regardless what the citizenry of that state appreciates, they've got to recognize same-sex unions in the same legal way they recognize traditional marriage. That's what the Supreme Court said. May I suggest to you the Supreme Court can say all it wants to, but the Supreme Court is not the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says no. The Supreme Court says that is not satisfactory and it's not equivalent to traditional marriage. Let's look at some of these verses. In Genesis 2 verse 18, God again to fulfill that need for a helpmeet for Adam, he made a woman. And he brought the woman to the man and married them. Isn't it interesting, in light of reflecting upon that point, that from the very beginning we see that homosexuality, and we see that its embodiment in terms of anything found in the Bible was not approved by God. By the time you reach the law of Moses... In Leviticus chapter 18, verse number 22, you and I remember that God said, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Even in the people of Israel, God specifically said, Don't ever do this. Two chapters later, to even elaborate further, He said, Not only is it abomination, but this at least tells us under the old law how God felt about it. Not only the man, but both men were to be put to death, or both women, didn't matter. Now I realize we live beneath a different law today. And certainly out of love we try to teach the truth to these individuals because we do want them to go to heaven, but they cannot go to heaven living this way. It is such that God says no. As you come to the bottom of that slide with me, there was a time in our land when homosexuality was understood to be a mental illness. In fact, the DSM of 1952, that is the manual that psychologists utilize to diagnose illnesses, and as it described mental illness, it included in that year homosexual behavior. You'll not be at all surprised that under cultural pressure and cultural evolution, that was taken out of the DSM in the 1970s. Today, it is perceived that homosexual behavior is natural. It's perceived that it is okay. They're born this way, aren't they? No, they're not. 1 Corinthians 6 says they're not. But it is another perversion that has worked its way upon marriage cheapening the appreciation that the God of heaven has invested within it. 
homosexuality isn't natural. In Romans 1 verse 26, the following statement is found. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. How much plainer could it have been? God said it's not natural. He said it's unnatural. Now, the human family may say that it is, but it doesn't change what the Bible says. Not only is that the case, we pointed out a moment ago that 1 Corinthians 6 reads like this. Maybe you have heard, and may I say, if you do read the preliminary statements in that court case of Obergefell versus Hodges, that Supreme Court case of June 2015, Justice Kennedy who, by the way, just announced his retirement a couple of days ago. But Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion for that case. And he, in fact, reasoned as follows. As he prepared to deliver the judgment of legal matters concerning it, he based his conclusion in part on these two observations. One, he said, marriage has changed. We look upon it differently today than we did many years ago. We have just learned a few minutes ago that isn't so. Jesus said it's the same way in the beginning as it, as it still is. God's view of marriage has never changed. The second thing that Justice Kennedy said was homosexual behavior is immutable. They're born that way and they can't help it. Well, look at 1 Corinthians 6. Let's see what this says. Beginning in verse 9, the text reads, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now that list is to the point. Paul says here are several individuals who are unrighteous, and in this condition they'll not go to heaven. Paul, who are they? Verse number 9. Fornicators. So those who are sexually immoral in their own marriages, idolaters, those who worship something or someone other than God, adulterers, again, those who are not as they ought to be even in their own marriage. Then he mentions effeminate as well as abusers of themselves with mankind. Let's talk for a moment about what those mean. If you're reading in other translations, the second one of them explicitly uses the word homosexual. But the point is, both categories of those who would engage in homosexual behavior are here included. Not only the aggressive, but the passive ones in that kind of lifestyle. Paul includes them both. And he says they'll not go to heaven like this. But the next idea, verse 11, is so potent. It says, and such were some of you. Such were what? In that congregation in court, there were some who had been drunkards, some who had been revilers, some who had been fornicators, some who had been homosexuals. Did you note that with me? And then he makes this statement, but ye are washed. You may have been then, but you are not now. 
they had repented. A homosexual can repent. They can change. They're not born that way. He goes on to say, You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't it a beautiful thing then to appreciate in these marriage matters that with regard to the perversions the human family has often introduced, God says, no, divorce is not to be easily obtained just for any reason. And when it comes to same-sex unions, God says, no. Let's close that slide like this. One of the things that's exceedingly dangerous for you and for me as Christians is this. It is likely the case that homosexual behavior is never going to become a leading part and a frequent occurrence in the church of Christ. The Word of God's just too plain on this. But the far greater danger is this. Romans 1 verse 32 reads like this. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And that last phrase, more literally translated, reads like this, but also consent with them that do them. You and I as Christians cannot approve or give our condoning character to the kinds of things we've studied about today. If we do, we're just as guilty as the people are committing them. And we will meet the same fate of judgment as they will. I know that the common thing in terms of same-sex marriage is, well, that's not the way I feel. If that's the way they feel, it's not going to bother me. We cannot feel that way. For that verse says, if I consent with it, I'm just as guilty as they are and I will have to answer in judgment for it. The dangers facing the church in terms of marriage matters bring us to a point of conclusion. Marriage is a bedrock found virtually on the first page of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis 2. And its basic character has been etched in the Word of God unchangingly ever since. And it cannot change. I know there are often these discussions about man redefining marriage. God defined it, and only He can change the definition. He defined it as one man for one woman for life. And you and I, in our consideration of it, must be faithful to that definition. Not only upholding it ourselves, but certainly in our children and those we can influence, striving that they too might understand that beautiful and amazing definition of God. Today, as we come to the close of our lesson, God has said no about these things we've introduced. But of course, God says no about many things that the human family has wished to introduce. As you and I sing that song like we did earlier, it's well with my soul. Maybe upon analysis of your life, maybe there's something standing between you and salvation. It may not be these kinds of things we've discussed today, but any sin will do. If we could be of help to you today as an alien sinner, one who would love to become a Christian and who would love to in fact be on the side of God, you realize accomplishing that doesn't just come with wanting it. You've got to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins, turning aside from them, intending to commit them no more. You've got to confess the name of Jesus as your Savior.
and you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. Today, what a joyous day it would be for you to participate in that. You could leave this building a Christian name in the book of life, looking forward to heaven. If you've become a faithful member of the body of Christ, but today you aren't. Over time, you have allowed yourself by way of thinking and influences to begin to pursue things that have brought disgrace upon you, upon your family, upon the church. You realize that doesn't have to continue. You can change just like they did in 1 Corinthians 6. They repented and they changed. You can too. We'd be honored to pray for you. In fact, we would love to do that and how exciting it'd be to be able to leave this building forgiven of whatever has stood between you and God. It doesn't matter what it is. If you'll repent of it and confess it, He'll forgive it. Today, if we could be of help to you in either of these ways, won't you come and do it now while together we stand and sing.